So, good evening, everybody. That microphone is working. You can hear me at the back, can you? Um, you can hear me at the back, can't you? Good. Oh, people at the front said yes, but it's the people <coughs> at the back I need. Um, so, good evening, everybody, and welcome to the LSE. We're delighted to be hosting um, Lucy Scott Moncrief's presidential address this year. It's a fantastic um, privilege for us to um, have her here at the LSE. And Lucy has a um, formidable career track uh, and set of achievements behind her, and also probably, hopefully, currently and in front of her. <coughs> She's obviously president of the Law Society at the moment. Um, but two areas of her work, she really stands out for me as a pioneer. And the first is in her area of, um, main area of practice of um, mental health. And as you, many of you will know, she's extremely well regarded in this area. Um, a lot of the cases she's been involved in have been important cases reported both from the English courts and the European, um, the European courts of human rights. So she also sits as a judge on the Mental Health Tribunal. Um, she trains um, and mentors those who want to become members of the Law Society's Mental Health Panel. Um, and her work in this area, as I say, is really um, second to none. And her second area where I think she's a major pioneer is actually in the delivery of legal services. Um, and she runs the, I think, the only virtual law firm, certainly the first virtual law firm. Um, and so I think her office space, she once said, is probably no much bigger than this stage um, for a firm, a very successful firm of uh, around about 60 lawyers um, representing, representing those that really, really do need um, legal representation. So those who are detained patients under the mental health legislation, um, prisoners facing life sentences, and young and vulnerable people. So she not only works in a critical area, but she does so in a truly innovative way. It's not on her legal services practice, however, to which she's going to speak this evening. She's going to talk about language and the law. And that's a an area that I know Lucy is very keen, she's very open to have questions afterwards, so she will speak for um, a period of time then. Please do feel free to ask um, any questions that you want so we can have a, a good dialogue going. We have had some tweets in earlier, um, so I've got a few tweets um, from that that um, Lucy might also want to address. <coughs> and then after that, you're very, very welcome to come across the, um, the short pedestrian way um, to the old building on the other side and on the fifth floor in our senior common room um, we have drinks and light refreshments as they would say on a train um, and you're very welcome to join us there okay but now I hand you over to Lucy Scott Moncrief thanks very much Julia and thank you all for coming out on such a chilly evening um, it's very good of you, and, and I appreciate it. Um, uh, this evening I'm going to be talking about language and the law. Um, uh, we all know how important language is, and, and um, I don't know how many of you are lawyers, but if, if you are, most of you who are, um, will appreciate in particular how important language is in the law. Um, but it's also important um, uh, across the world. Uh, we know that, yes, we can help uh, a rank outsider get into the White House, I'm pleased to see him back again. Um, and we also know that Read My Lips, No More Taxes uh, did the same for the first President Bush, or at least some of us will know that. Some of you may be a bit young to remember that, but anyway, there are people here who will remember that. Um, and I think we all also know the different messages being given um, when we talk about someone being strident instead of assertive or stubborn instead of determined. Uh, and I'm particularly interested in the way that language is used in the law, in the wording of our laws, and in the conversations about the law, and in the way that these words can undermine the very purpose to which they're being put. Um, I think it's very promising that the government has a particular faith in the power of language, as evidenced in the establishment of its nudge unit, uh, whereby simple language and imagery is used to persuade people to make different and better choices. Uh, this seems an entirely uh, good thing, and of course very cheap. Um, I therefore want to think about how nudge theory can help us in the language of the law. And I'm also really interested in the Human Rights Project and, and desperately sad that its ideals and benefits have been so badly misrepresented by a number of people, uh, some of whom clearly had their own axes to grind 
but others of whom really ought to know better, including governments and including this government. Um, but just as words have been used to vilify the Human Rights Project, they can also be used to restore it. Uh, so tonight, I want to explore the language of human rights to see whether we can come up with some nudge words and phrases uh, to restore the confidence of the public in laws specifically designed to benefit all of them, individually and collectively. Um, while thinking about what I was going to say over the last few months, because I'm afraid I have been thinking about it for a few months, <laughs> um, I've been very aware that the Commission on the Bill of Rights was due to report before Christmas. Um, so I've had to live with the possibility that the Commission's report would say what I wanted to say and leave me speechless. Um, luckily for me, it didn't. Um, and even more luckily, it's offered me an opportunity to, think what I'm, uh, to, to link what I'm saying uh, to one of its conclusions, um, which is that there needs to be better public education and understanding of the present human rights structures and their, end, and their effects. And I think we would all agree with that. Um, so I'm, I think I can neatly position what I'm saying this evening as a response to that invitation um, and hope that it will add to the debate that we desperately need to have in this country about human rights. So, what are some of the myths that we need to tackle? Number one, the European Convention and Court are part of the European Union. Number two, our human rights law favours the bad guys over the good guys. Number three, it doesn't reflect our traditions and culture. Number four, the court goes beyond its original remit. And number five, the European Court unacceptably challenges the supremacy of Parliament. So, taking these one by one, I mean, of course there are others, but um, I, I could go on all night, but I'm, I'm going to save you from that, so I'm just going to stick to these ones. So, number one, the European Convention and Court are part of the European Union. As far as I can see, the only basis for saying that is that the word European features in both descriptions. <laughs> um, and this is a misperception that those wishing to cause mischief can easily exploit. Um, we can't change the words, and I don't think it's worth getting into um, any kind of detailed argument about this. Um, but I think what one can say is something along the lines of they are no more connected than Her Majesty and the performers of Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> <laughs> but you can make up your own connections or non-connections. But it's, it's a nonsense, really, isn't it? So it shouldn't be taken too seriously, that one, as a, as a sort of coherent argument. Secondly, uh, number two, myth number two, our human rights law favours the guy, bad guys over the good guys. Um, no, it doesn't. Uh, but that's not an argument. I appreciate that. Um, human rights are rights that we have by virtue of being human. Uh, the clue is in the name. And they belong to the virtuous and unvirtuous alike. So how has this myth come about? Uh, the American essayist, H.L. Mencken, hit the nail on the head, as far as I'm concerned, when he wrote, the trouble with fighting for human freedom is that one spends most of one's time defending scoundrels, for it's against scoundrels that oppressive laws are first aimed, and oppression must be stopped at the beginning if it is to be stopped at all. True then, true now. Much of the current polarised debate focuses on individuals or groups of people seeking to affirm their human rights who are perceived as, and may well be, bad guys. Uh, this makes a good story for newspapers and phone-in programmes, so long as it's presented as a, first, a version of health and safety gone mad, uh, or politically correct idiocy. Um, rather than being presented more accurately and uh, more boringly um, as a decision on the oppressiveness or otherwise of the actions uh, of the state in relation to the individual concerned. Uh, Abu Qatada is a fascinating case in point, and I'm not going to get into the, the um, arguments in the Abu Qatada case in the sense of coming down one side or the other, which will be a great relief to my colleagues at the Law Society. Um, I'm going to talk about the misperceptions in the case. Um, Abu Qatada is a Jordanian citizen who's lived here as a refugee since 1993. Since coming here, he's been convicted in his absence in Jordan of terrorist offences, which he's always denied. <coughs> since 2005, successive governments over here have been trying to deport him in the interests of national security, uh, which is, of course, entirely legitimate if justified. But the litigation in his case doesn't turn on whether the deportation is justified, whether Abu Qatada is a threat that the government says he is. So media and political comment about the European court stupidly not realising what a bad guy he is is completely misconceived. The legal issues in the case are all about the security and justice systems of Jordan. If Abu Qatada is deported, he will be retried for the offences for which he was previously being convicted, 
using the, the evidence previously used, much of which it has generally been accepted, probably been obtained through torture. Now, it's a well-established principle of our law, leaving aside Jordanian law, that evidence obtained through torture cannot be used in a fair trial. And it's another principle that everyone in the jurisdiction, in this jurisdiction, is entitled to a fair trial, and that the principle cannot be evaded by exporting, either through deportation or extradition or rendition, unwanted individuals to less squeamish jurisdictions, um, or at least not when anyone's watching. So the government's case is that the evidence may not have been obtained through torture, which is a perfectly legitimate argument, um, and that Abu Qatada would get a fair trial in Jordan, which is also a perfectly legitimate argument. What it doesn't argue is that he's not entitled to a fair trial, because to do so, to argue that, would be to undermine the commitment to the rule of law that has existed here, however falteringly, for so many centuries. And this government, like previous governments, doesn't want to do that. Students of the Magna Carta, and I'm sure there are many of you here, will recognise to no one will we sell, to no one deny or delay right or justice. That's been um, our mantra for the last 800 years, um, and it's one that all governments have, have adhered to. But I wonder if the problem goes deeper than simply a misunderstanding of what individual cases are about, and I wonder if the words we use in talking about human rights law may add to the confusion. Let's start with the word rights. Rights sounds like entitlement, sounds like a sense of entitlement, sounds like self-righteousness. These are not attractive traits in themselves, and, and certainly not to the English, where this, much of this misperception seems to lie, um, and are even less so when it's perceived that those claiming these rights have little to justify any sense of entitlement. Alleged criminals, no smoke without fire, convicted criminals, foreigners who have no connection with our country except that they're here, famous people trying to hide their bad behaviour, and so on. And claiming rights also carries with it a sense that the person doing the claiming thinks that their rights are more important than the rights of the law-abiding, ordinary, well-behaved majority of the population, like us. I know my rights is not how properly behaved people are meant to deal with situations requiring compromise, as so many situations do. But of course, in reality, human rights law is very much alive to the need to balance conflicting rights and makes explicit provision for the circumstances in which an individual's inalienable and indivisible, and I'll come back to that phrase later, human rights are not enforceable. In human rights speak, we talk about qualified rights and proportionality to explain how this balancing act is done. But qualified rights, if you're not a human rights lawyer, sounds like you have to qualify to get these rights. And it's very weird that it's always the bad guys who seem to have the qualities to get these qualified rights. <laughs> and I doubt that proportionality is a frequent topic of conversation on the Clapham Omnibus. So why not use the much more familiar and sufficiently similar concept of fairness? Because that's what it's really about. So, for example, when we talk about the right to liberty, we can show that when it's fair to do so, the law prevents some people from enforcing this right in certain circumstances which we would probably all see as fair. Even the right to life is legally unenforceable when death occurs as a result of, for example, the use of force which is no more than absolutely necessary in defence of any person from unlawful violence or in actions lawfully taken for the purposes of quelling a riot or insurrection. Well, that sounds fair, doesn't it? You don't need to talk about qualified rights. You don't need to talk about... It's just fair. We can all understand that. And one of the advantages about using fairness as a description is that we all know that the line between fairness and unfairness <coughs> is fuzzy, and it's placed differently by different people. But this fuzziness does not delegitimize the concept, nor the duty of, for instance, judges to make decisions where the line should be drawn in any given case. Now, I'm going to say a bit now, which is a bit of a tongue twister, so I'm going to take it very, very slowly, and I hope that I get through it. I want to come back to human rights being inalienable and indivisible, uh, and I think we have to agree that this is a perversely alienating and scarily mathematical way of describing a profoundly important and warm concept. And that concept is that our rights belong to us as of right. They're not given, they're not a reward, they're not within the gift of any government, and they belong to all of us because we're all human. Yes, they can be unenforceable, even to the point of death, but the right comes first, and the grounds for unenforceability come after that. So how about 
our fundamental rights and freedoms are ours because we're human beings as an alternative to human rights are inalienable and indivisible, <coughs> to which we can add, no one, including the government, can unfairly ignore them, which covers, I think, qualified rights and proportionality. Third myth, human rights law doesn't reflect our traditions and culture. I've had real difficulty in understanding this, uh, particularly as in his lovely book on the rule of law, Lord, B Lord Bingham said, the rights and freedoms embodied in the ECHR are in truth fundamental in the sense that they are guarantees which no one living in a free democratic society such as the UK should be required to forego, which seems to deal with our culture fairly comprehensively. And he also said the common law and statute have for many years given a measure of protection to such rights, which I think goes a considerable way to dealing with our traditions as well. However, some people rather bravely don't agree with Lord Bingham um, and the Commission on the Bill of Rights has identified some of their concerns. And I think it's fair to summarise these um, as being that the ECHR has brought about changes alien to our culture and tradition, in particular our Judeo-Christian culture, and in particular our tradition that rights carry responsibilities. Well, yes and no. Most of the ECHR rights were articulated in England and the UK long before they were in any other European country, such as the right to life, the right to trial before being punished, the right for fair punishment, the prohibition of arbitrary arrest and detention, all of which are in Magna Carta, and the prohibition on torture in the Bill of Rights 1689. Many others were recognised over here well before the ECHR was drafted, such as the right to free speech, freedom of assembly, religion, thought, conscience, the right of respect for private and family life. Um, I think most of us will know the phrase or sentence, an Englishman's home is his castle, um, which I'm going to rephrase for reasons that will become apparent later as an Englishman, English person's home is his or her castle. <laughs> um, but the link between our traditions and the ECHR is not surprising as the European Convention derives from the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights, both of which the UK played a major role in drafting. On the other hand, we do not have an illustrious history in relation to equality and minority rights, and at least some of this does seem to derive from our Judeo-Christian heritage, uh, on which I'm not an expert, but I was brought up in it. Um, for instance, Article 1 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights, is quite hard to reconcile with the Christian doctrine of original sin. Um, and when Mrs. Alexander, who wrote All Things Bright and Beautiful, included a verse, the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate, she was undoubtedly writing in the Christian tradition, but not, I suggest, in compliance with Article 14. <laughs> of course, some improvements in equality long precede interma international human rights law, I was talking to a retired judge last week who mentioned that his mother was a suffragette, which was, what an amazing thing to, to um, have a suffragette in your family and to be brought up by a suffragette. Anyway, sorry. Um, which brought home to me the fact that there must be a fair few people still alive um, who can remember the days before women had the vote in this country. And lots of us here will have clear memories of the casual discrimination dished out to people quite lawfully on the basis of race, gender, sexual orientation, age and disability. We can't say that it doesn't still go on, but at least we can say we've got laws against it now. And for that, we can thank the ECHR to a significant extent. So for those who consider ECHR rights as alien, we can say that mainly they're not. And where they are, all of us who are not fit, healthy, Christian, prosperous, white men with no female, old, ill, disabled, non-Christian, black, Asian, minority ethnic, or LGBT, LGBT cherished relatives or friends should be very grateful. As for linking rights and responsibilities, our human rights law does do this. I don't know why anyone says it doesn't do this. For reasons already explained, it doesn't suggest that rights have to be earned by any responsible behaviour. But Article 1 of the Universal Declaration not only says all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights, but also that they are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood or sisterhood, as they would now say. Um, and the provisions of the ECHR put responsibility at the heart of people's entitlement to enforce their rights. 
The wording of the convention is saturated with concepts of responsibility. Criminal, i.e. socially irresponsible behaviour, can lose someone the right to enforce their right to liberty, life, privacy, family life, marriage, children, voting, free speech, probably more. Furthermore, people who are thought irresponsible through no fault of their own can't enforce certain rights. Children aren't allowed to vote. People without the necessary mental capacity can't marry or stand trial, and so on. And finally, enforcement of right can be curtailed if to do otherwise would be to allow someone to act irresponsibly towards the rights of others, individually or collectively. Um, and the recent decisions on freedom of religion are a good example of this, of the, of the balance, of the fairness that has to be worked out between uh, the rights on one side and on the other. So let's not talk about alien rights. Let's talk about how our traditions and heritage and linking of rights and responsibilities underpins human rights law rather than being at odds with it. Myth number four, the European Court goes beyond its remit. Um, I'm going to be fairly brief here because it seems to me one of those other sort of um, slightly nonsensical arguments. Um, because, and also, in talking about language, I, I very much do not want to um, suggest any replacement for the beautiful phrase of, of living instrument. I think it's a wonderful idea. But I do think we need to explain it a bit better. We need to explain that the convention was designed to grow with the societies in which the people it's designed to protect live, uh, adapting to changing circumstances and cultures so that it can still be effective in protecting our fundamental free freedoms uh, as, as society develops. Finally, the last uh, myth. The claim is made that the court unacceptably challenges the supremacy of Parliament. Well, it does challenge, that's absolutely right, uh, which is why some politicians get so shirty about it, but not unacceptably, because that was always the intention. That's what it's meant to do. Um, and this is a, a quote that many of you will have read and heard, but I'll, I'll just go through it again. David Maxwell Fife, who was the Conservative Home Secretary in Churchill's 1951 government and a member of the British team involved in drafting the European Convention, said, the Convention superimposes an international code on our unwritten constitution. They knew what they were doing. And when the government in 1966 allowed individual petition to the court, it did so in the knowledge that parliamentary decisions would be open to challenge. It knew what it was doing. But this idea of, of uh, something over the supremacy of, of, of Parliament is, is nothing new. Um, for 800 years, we've recognised the need to keep the power of government in check. Uh, in the 13th century, the king was absolute ruler. And Magna Carta, famous for articulating the rights and freedoms of some of the population, also gave the barons authority to challenge bad King John if he went too far. And in the 17th century, Parliament was stronger, but the monarchs still had huge powers. And the Bill of Rights, both set out the fundamental rights and freedoms of the people and asserted the right of Parliament to constrain the use by William and Mary of the royal prerogatives. This shows that the constraints on Parliament provided by the ECHR follow a long and glorious tradition and are completely part of our heritage and culture. In a country like ours, with no entrenched laws to protect the rights of the people against the power of the state, we have a particular need for protections that cannot be overturned through the ordinary processes of Parliament. International treaties, ratified because they reflect our values and priorities as a nation, serve this purpose, and we should be proud that they do so and that we have governments that recognise the value of limiting their own power, however irksome they find it. And the long-running saga of prisoners' voting rights is a good illustration of why we should be grateful to the European Court. Prisoners are obviously much more vulnerable to the power of the state than most of us, and they also fall into the category of scoundrels. They're exactly the sort of people who need the protection of a court of last resort beyond the reach of Parliament, which always has an eye on re-election and therefore popularity. And here the issue is not what makes the Prime Minister feel sick or whether the court is going too far, but whether a blanket ban is fair, proportionate in the language of human rights, fair in the language that we might choose to use. And I'm not giving a view on that. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that I know. Um, but if the government doesn't comply, where will we be? Um, many people seem to feel very strongly that the European Court should butt out of this one 
But will they feel the same if a future government decides to impose lifetime voting bans on people convicted of certain offences, regardless of whether they're still in prison, or legislates to remove voting rights from the unemployed? These are not such far-fetched suggestions as they may sound. Um, In the United States, there are nine states that impose a lifetime voting ban on convicted felons, and it doesn't take a huge amount to commit a felony in the United States. And I don't know whether any of you here are regular readers of The Sun, um, but last Wednesday there was an outraged article by their political editor complaining that some Labour MPs relied on the votes of those on benefits to get elected, as if somehow people with benefits shouldn't have the vote. Who'd have thought it? People on benefits having the vote. What a shocking thing. And when one considers the other challenges uh, to the will of Parliament, like the royal veto that we're hearing so much about at the moment, like the gigantic raspberry blown to our tax system by global corporations who choose whether to pay tax here or not, like civil servants changing the text and meaning of secondary legislation, I like to think that I won't be alone in preferring the transparency, due process, and focus on the interests of people without power or influence of the European court. So, what nudge statements do we end up with? Number one, the European Convention and Court of Human Rights are no more connected to the European Union than the monarch is to Messrs. Mercury and May. Number two, our fundamental freedoms are ours as of right, and no one, including the government, can unfairly ignore them. Number three, our traditions and heritage and linking of rights and responsibilities underpins human rights law rather than being at odds with it. Number four, our human rights law grows with us and our society to continue protecting us. Number five, our human rights law protects us from an overmighty state. And number six, our human rights law is not about foreigners or prisoners or asylum seekers. It's about us and how we think of ourselves and what sort of a country we want to live in. And I'm sure there are better ways of saying all of these things, and I'm sure lots of you will be able to come up with better ways of saying it, but this is my contribution to this particular debate, which I hope will move forward. Um, Very briefly, I want to touch on one other point, and that is the language of our domestic legislation. Um, As we all know, traditionally, this has been couched in the language of men. Don't look so worried, Charles. (laughs) Not only in times when men were pretty much the only people who counted, um, and if you look in Magna Carta, you'll find that the only women referred to there are wives, widows, sisters and daughters, um, but much more recently. For instance, in the Education Act 2002, the Minister of State, teachers, head teachers and pupils are all referred to as he, even though at that time the Minister of State was a woman, most teachers are women, and at least half the children are girls and young women. The only use of the word her that I could find were references to Her Majesty's Inspector of Schools, although even then the inspector was also presumed to be a man. And I always assumed that this male-dominated language was a function of the well-known provision of Section 6 of the Interpretation Act 1978 that unless the contrary intention appears, words importing the masculine gender include the feminine. There it is. It's laid down in law. That's what you have to do. But it turns out this can't be the case because having now looked at the Interpretation Act 1978, which has taken me a very long time to get around to do it, there's also a provision, unless the contrary intention appears, words importing the feminine gender include the masculine. So what was going on there then? Well, I haven't had time to research it, but I suspect that what was going on was nearly 30 years of, let us hope, unconscious resistance to change. And I say was because things have changed. Um, In March 2007, Jack Straw announced in Parliament... For many years, the drafting of primary legislation has relied on Section 6 of the Interpretation Act 1978, under which words referring to the masculine gender include the feminine. In practice, this means that male pronouns are used on their own in contexts where a reference to women and men is intended, and also that words such as chairman are used for offices capable of being held by either gender. Did he know about the other bit of Section 6, or was he just gracefully gliding over it? Who knows? He goes on to say, many believe that this practice tends to to reinforce historic gender stereotypes and presents an obstacle to clearer understanding for those unfamiliar with the convention. And just to be precisely clear, he's talking about parliamentary convention and and, and drafting convention, not the European convention, which was something we talked about earlier. And since then, legislation has been drafted as far as possible in a gender-neutral way. 
So that, for instance, in the Equalities Act 2010, there are hardly any gender-specific nouns or pronouns at all, except for the Queen, of course, who um, always gets her special privileges. Um, Well, that's very good. Gender-neutral is very good. But could it be better? The trouble with gender-neutral language is that although it doesn't reinforce stereotypes, nor does it challenge them, it simply ignores them. And if we want to use nudge theory, here's another opportunity to do it. Much as I would like to see the introduction of Acts of Parliament where different roles are shared out between men and women in a way that challenges stereotypes, uh, so that board chairs, head teachers, union representatives, doctors, maybe even judges are all called her routinely, I realise that it's unlikely to happen in the foreseeable future. But there is another option, almost as good, which has actually already been tried. Um, In my browsing, because I'm a very sad person, in my browsing on the legislation.gov website, I came across a charming surprise. The Civil Partnership Act 2004, uh, which was, of course, before Jack Straw's statement, made a tiny little experiment in referring to civil partners as he or she. Um, It was only a little experiment, as mainly, even in that act, they're referred to as he, but there's half a dozen uses of the expression he or she, um, and they're very effective at giving a little anti-stereotyping nudge or even a little jolt. So how about thinking, uh, rethinking uh, gender-neutral language used in legislation and experimenting with gender-inclusive language instead? That's an offer I make to the nudge unit uh, because it would be cheap, it would be easy, and I think it would be effective. But the offer I make to the nudge unit and to all of you um, is to think about how we can use the power of words uh, in our everyday discourse, in our conversations, to get people thinking differently about who does what and to bring the reputation of human rights back to where it belongs, at the heart of our society. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lucy. That was a fantastic talk and absolutely bang on time. Guaranteed, guaranteed that we we're going to be to the minute on that one. So now it's your opportunity to, to ask questions. Yes. There's a, someone with a microphone coming, so you can say that louder and everyone can hear how well you <laughs> <laughs> uh, People very rarely accuse me of being quiet. I was just saying, I want to thank you for so eloquently setting up what I think most, if not all of us here, think today about human rights. I'm very interested in your subject about, about the use of language in law. And one of the ways I, I feel that people try to um, undermine human rights is by to, to seize control of the language and to change it, referring to things like uh, waterboarding and uh, extraordinary rendition and targeted drone attacks and collateral damage, which really are just simply torture and kidnapping, uh, you know, extrajudicial killing and, and the casual murder of huge numbers of civilian people. So I think it's vital that we all get back to trying to use real, plain English about these such important issues. I completely agree with you. Um, that whenever somebody uses expressions that, that um, make things more palatable, um, that's usually because they're describing something very unpalatable and perhaps we ought to be a bit clearer about it. Please do raise your hands in pauses because I'll make a little list. Okay, so. uh, Joshua Rosenberg. Um, as far as we know, the um, political parties are currently thinking about what they're going to put in their manifestos on human rights in preparation for the next election. Yes. What do you think the Conservatives are going to do? Are they going to propose uh, that uh, we uh, withdraw from the jurisdiction of the Human Rights Court, that we denounce the Convention... And if they were to say this, what would you, by the time of the election, no longer president of the Law Society, say in response? Well, um, I don't know what the Conservatives are going to do, but the Attorney General's just behind you, so... (laughs) 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 He's not the Attorney General. Well, I don't know what the Conservatives are going to do. Um, Do I think we should withdraw uh, from from the European Convention? No, I don't think we should withdraw from the European Convention at all. Why would we? Um, you know, to come back to what Lord Bingham said, you know, which of these rights do we want to do without? 
Um, so, no, I, I don't agree with that. And, and what's more, nor do I think the Conservatives will. I, I think that the, the, um, the way that it's become embedded um, in our culture means that although the, there are sort of, um, uh, you know, attempts to try and, and, and undermine it, I think the evidence of the, of the Commission on the Bill of Rights was that most people around the country are very supportive of human rights. Um, and it's, it's those with loud voices and access to grind who, who, who tilt the, the message. Thank you, and thank you once again, Lucy. My name's Professor Sarah Chandler, and I'm chair of the Law Society's Human Rights Committee. And I'd like um, to re... Um, well, to look at the language of economic and social rights, particularly because I'm a housing solicitor working with people who are homeless or f facing homelessness, and you can contrast the kind of language that is used, such as scrounger, with hunger, poverty, homelessness, and look at the way that welfare rights and housing rights change. They are part of our legislation, and they are rights that I would refer to as basic human rights. What's your view on rearranging the language in respect of these welfare rights? Well, I mean, politicians, um, it's their stock in trade, isn't it? You know, they are, they are persuaders. Their, their job is to persuade um, and um, persuade us to vote for them, persuade us that their policies are good and so on and so forth. So, of course, they use language to try and do that because otherwise it's pretty dull. Um, what do I think about it? I, I think that... Um, uh, on a personal level, I think it's wretched. Of course I think it's wretched. Um, what do we do about it? I think what we do is always try and look behind it. Um, whoever's saying it, whoever's saying, what are they trying to cover up? Who is it? Some journalists said whenever they're talking to a politician, they're always thinking, why is this guy lying to me? <coughs> whatever they're saying, whatever they're saying, why is this guy lying to me? Or woman, of course, lying to me. <laughs> um, so we, we all have a duty to try and look behind it. That's the thing. They can say what they like. You know, it's a free country, free speech. They can say what they like, but we can try and look behind it. Thank you. This gentleman there, and then we'll start down, and then one in the back. Thanks, Lucy. Uh, Adam Sampson. Um, Lucy, I agree with you wholeheartedly, as you would expect me to do, and, and, and again, um, fantastically uh, persuasive stuff. Um, the bit I was interested in is this linkage, though, between um, rights and responsibilities. And it seems to me that part of the battleground here may be around the concept of earning your rights mm. rather than having your rights taken away. I'm thinking there of um, uh, stuff in the prison regime where you start off in basic with almost no rights at all mm. and you have to earn what many of us would regard as a basic right. Do you think there's anything we need to be doing there to protect that fundamental concept in Article 1 you quoted, that mm. we start off with the rights and they can only be taken away if we, uh, if we transgress in some sense, rather than needing to earn the things that are, some of us would regard as basic? Well, it, it would be going against, um, as I say, 800 years of history to say that you have to earn your rights, because that certainly wasn't what Magna Carta said. And the difficulty then would be, well, when do you get your rights? Is it when you're 18? If it's not when you're born, when do you get them? Um, and who decides whether you've earned them or not? Um, there are, um, you know, lots of people would have different views about this. I think the idea of... of you've got them unless you mess them about, unless you mess about with them, is, is actually a far easier concept for most people to get their heads around. Um, so, and and, and the, the trouble is that the, the people, the people who, I think, the people who say rights don't seem to come along with responsibilities, actually, they haven't looked at it carefully enough. Because, you know, the right to liberty. We've got prisons full of people who don't have liberty. How did that happen? You know, if they've all got a right to liberty, it wouldn't have happened. So, you know, the evidence is there in front of our very eyes. And once again, it's for us to explain. You know, just look around you, see what's going on, and you'll see that rights and responsibilities are intimately linked. Um, my name is Nick Smedley. Uh, I'm a consultant in the field of the, of the law. I thought it was a great uh, speech and a sterling defense of human rights, but I did have one issue with it, and that was that you focused on 
the use of language as though the sort of misapprehensions about human rights are because people don't get the language. Now, I don't travel on the Clapham omnibus, but I've got the next best thing, which is my mum, who's, um, <laughs> who does, you know, it's real vox popular stuff, and I've never heard her say to me, you know, the thing is, when they talk about inalienable rights, I don't really get that, and what's this divisible thing? She's more likely to say, I don't care about Abu Qatada and whether he's going to get a fair trial in Jordan, because as far as I can see, that's nothing to do with my human rights. Um, so, to me, the issue is more, I think, to do, uh, well, let me put this to you as a proposition, with a wider issue about uh, a perception that as we become a much more prosperous society, we become much more rights-focused and much more individual-focused. Um, and there is a widespread perception that there's been a concomitant decline in social responsibility, community responsibility, respect for authority, and all that sort of thing. Mm. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but there's bound to be some disbenefits as we move towards a much more focused on individual rights for the social cohesion of society. And I wonder whether that's part of what the wider perception is, that human rights are actually all about give me what I want, you know, blah, blah. I just wonder if you could reflect some thoughts uh, I'm, on that. I'm, no, I'm sure you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the whole topic of, of you know, th this is only a very small suggestion as part of it. But I think there are two things to say about that. Firstly, I think that some of the, um, some of the increase in focusing on rights um, has to do with a sense that the welfare state isn't in quite such a good shape as it used to be, and it's every person for themselves. That's part of it. But the thing about Abu Qatada... I once had a conversation with a friend of mine who was saying much the same sort of thing. Nice person, um, liberal, you know, saying, do I care? Not at all. And I said, well, you know, supposing one of your sons was at college um, with a very mixed group of other students, like, you know, the students at the LSE, for instance, and supposing they made friends with somebody and, and they used to go to the pub with them and they were in their address book and so on and so forth. And then supposing one day that person was arrested and in being questioned, named your son um, and said, oh, well, he knew what I was up to and he, you know, he's someone who you want. And would you then be quite happy to just say, oh, well, you know, who cares? Who cares? You know, they, there's no smoke without fire. You know, they, I think then it brings it home to you. And that's why, you know, Abu Qatada, it's not about Abu Qatada. It's about fair trials. And if he can't get a fair trial or if we can export him, then we can export anybody. We can extradite anybody. And that, I think, you know, there, there must be... No, I'm sure you have an entirely respectable family, but there might be some outer reaches of your family <laughs> who know people who, aren't, who are a bit disreputable. And thinking about them, I think, is, is that's what you need to do to always bring it back to, well, if it's not them, one day it'll be you or someone who you love. <laughs> I'd love to meet your mother, and I'd love to have this conversation with her. I really would. <laughs> So, um, at the back. Hi, um, can I just ask what your thoughts are on lowering the voting age to 16? Lowering the motoring age? Vo voting age. Voting age, sorry. Um, well, I don't... Uh, my sons are in their 20s now. I don't think they were any more sensible when they were 18 than they were when they were 16. <laughs> They're not here, so I can say that. Um... I think that, um, you know, intelligent 16-year-olds who are really interested in politics and, and, and so on, um, why not? Uh, I, I, I hope that, that um, schools, um, you know, provide um, information to allow people... I mean, it didn't happen in my day. It's called current affairs, I think. But, um, you know, I, I hope that the education is sufficient for people to know what it is that they're talking about. I think people don't know nearly enough about how the structures of our society worked. And maybe if the voting age was lowered, there'd be more impetus in... Um, it's my security detail, don't worry. <laughs> there'd be more impetus, there'd be more reason to try and make sure that young people do know about how society works, how the me mechanics of society works, which I think is a really important thing. Just in the middle No, no, so they're down here with glasses. Sorry. Hello, I'm John Gould. Um, I was very interested in what you said about fairness as the balancing position of rights, and I had two questions arising from that. Um, the first was whether you thought the concept of fairness changed over time, 
And secondly, if you thought it did change over time, whether you thought it was firstly a legal question for lawyers and courts, a social question for elected politicians, or a moral question for philosophers. Crikey. Um, okay, the first part of that, yes, I do think that concepts of fairness change over time. And if I can go back to all things bright and beautiful, it used to be absolutely fair that some people had a lot and some people had nothing, and hey, that's just the way it goes. Um, personally, I think that concepts of fairness um, change as, as society changes. And then it's up to the, the, the judges to interpret that. It's up to the philosophers to, to discuss it and it's up to the politicians to respond to it so you know it's, it's, not, it's not for any um, organisation or group of people to say what fairness is, we all have our sense of what fairness is um, and, and you know we have different senses, your mum has a different sense from some of the rest of us But so somebody has to hold the ring on that and, and to explain where they think in any particular case fairness lies uh, tension. yeah yeah Is there anybody holding up a blue pen? My name is Georgette Jabba, and I work for Atanda Solicitors in Elephant and Castle. Sorry, could you speak up slightly, please? It's quite okay. hard for everybody else to hear. My name is Georgette Jabba. I work for Atanda Solicitors in Elephant and Castle. Thank you very much for your lecture. I noticed that you didn't talk about mental health. There is still quite a lot of stigma attached to mental health and um, the language that we use we call them mad and bad and a, a large amount of black people within the mental health system I don't know as lawyers what we can do to address this what is your opinion on that? Right, um, I, I thought very carefully about referring specifically to mental health when I was, when I was describing you know, the people who, um, who would be um, not treated equally if we didn't have the ECHR I talked about health and fitness, and I talk, thought of talking about able-bodied and disabled, but that would have left out people with mental health problems. And, and what's the opposite of people with mental health problems? Because as far as I'm concerned, we've all got mental health problems. It's a matter of degree. And so it's just too complicated to actually describe that. But of course, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right that, that um, you know, it's, one of the, it's one of the areas where, where prejudice and, and, and discrimination and stigma are still enormously powerful. There are laws against it, though, and that's the start. Um, but it's a hugely important area. I agree with you. And there's a lady next to the other lady. Let me check traffic. Sorry, if you do want to speak, just yes, waving. Uh, my name is Happy. Um, my question is that how do you draw a line between freedom of speech and incitement to terrorism? Um, any judges in the room? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's the thing, isn't it? That's... That's where the line has to be. Someone has to draw the line because it's never going to be how do you do it in the abstract. It's, you know, the law says in the abstract, well, these are the, these are the circumstances, and then somebody gets arrested, and then somebody has to make a decision on the actual words that they said, the actual circumstances. That's the, that's the job of judges. Thank you. Uh, lady with a white jacket and black polo neck. Hi, my name is Emily, and the reason that I'm a lawyer is because of the power of words. The problem, though, with the power of words is you have to find the balance between it being too vague and too specific. If I'm understanding your speech correctly, you seem to say that we need to have the, the, power, the, the words used to describe and implement human rights law to be more specific and more, more general. But isn't there a danger in having that? I think what I'm saying is, you know, in court, in legislation, you need to be as precise as you possibly can. Um, but um, in common conversation, you know, most people are never going to be on the receiving end of a human rights abuse. They're not going to be arrested and charged with an offence and have to um, try and protect their human rights. Most people, their conversation about human rights comes through reading the paper, reading about other people. And that's where um, you need to have um, conversation so that you don't have to have specialist knowledge, you don't have to use ordinary words in specialised ways, you don't have to lose, use rather odd words like inalienable. That's where you need the ordinary conversation. Um, when you're in court, then, yeah, you've got to be precise. And, and when you're, when you're um, uh, drafting legislation, you've got to be precise. But there are two different conversations, aren't there? There's one about where are human rights in our, in our society? What's the, what's the role of human rights? Are they good? Are they bad? Do we like them? Don't we like them? And so on. 
And then there's, in particular cases, when drawing up a law in Parliament, drafting legislation or whatever, discussing the drafting of legislation, or in court. So they're different conversations. And um, my, the first version of the speech that I did, and, and I have been doing it for a long time, was five times as long. You'd be glad to hear that people made me stop. Um, and the reason it was five times as long is because I was trying to provide evidence for everything I was saying. So there are great swathes of quotes from this and that and the other, all of which showed that what I was saying was, I thought, justified. But actually, most people don't want that. You know, that's fine if you're writing a book. Um, but actually, if you're, if you're just having an argument or a discussion, you want to keep it simple um, so, that, so that both sides can engage properly and, and there isn't a sort of discrepancy between the two, a misunderstanding between the two about what's actually being spoken about. Lady at the back. No, no, lady at the back with grey hair, please. Sorry, and then I've got one at the front and then it'll be the other lady at the back. So you first. Oh, hello. Um, I'm Catherine Wolfe, President of the Institute of Trademark Attorneys. You've not had to defend the proposition in this environment that uh, language has power or that language has value. But if you ever did, you could go down to the level of saying that language actually has price when you buy and sell language in the form of trademarks. And then if somebody asked you for an example, you could say that Steve Jobs and Paul McCartney came to a price on the word Apple. <laughs> so don't say language doesn't matter. <laughs> But I can still eat an apple without having to pay. <laughs> well, I have to pay for the apple, but not for the use of the word. My name's Tom Schuller. Can I ask you about entitlement? If I understood you rightly, you suggested that this is a, um, a word that carries negative connotations. And if so, is that something that has happened over time, or is it intrinsic for you? And can I just ask on the gender... Side. Do, do you not think we should just adopt a plural pronoun, so they, as a gender neutral? Or I mean, I know that doesn't deal with your your stereotype challenging, but it does get round a lot of the awkwardness. Well, actually, I was talking to um, a parliamentary draftsman, and he was a man, um, as as part of all of this, and and talking about how they'd adapted to this gender neutral stuff. And he said, "There's a whole. Um, got, there were about six ways that he described that they could do it." And one of them is using they sometimes. One of them is just not using pronouns at all. So the minister says this, and then when the minister wants to do this, the minister will do that. And so you just use, you know, which is a bit clunky. So there's a whole different ways that they do it. But if you're talking about an individual, um, it's a bit, you know, it sounds, you know. But there are lots of different ways of doing it. But I, you know, and that's one of them. And that's one of the ones they use. It's fascinating, actually, when you start looking at it and think, well, actually, sorry, I'm being sad again. (laughs) <laughs> no, you're not. It's an academic institution. We do this stuff. Okay? We do this stuff. So the lady at the back has been dying to get in, and I finally got her, and then the gentleman at the front. So they hand out light brown jacket. Always best to wear something distinctive, by the way, to these events, because the person at the front can only identify you by your clothing. Hi, my name's Elizabeth. Um, I graduated from LSE last year. Um, I think we're hearing a lot of debates about the language of human rights and the status of human rights, but... I'm wondering if this language is effective for talking about the status of the human, full stop. Um, and if not, is it inhibiting a conversation about the status of the human rather than about these legal or even intrinsic rights? Um, I'm also wondering, are you offering values like fairness as an alternative or as a supplement? And do you think that those alternatives or supplements would be more, infecti- more effective for the well-being of the human? Okay, um, I think that the idea of, of um, human rights and the value of humans go together. Um, I mean, humans have values beyond their rights, obviously, but, but it's, it's a way of, of um, making very clear that every human has rights and is valuable. Um, if, they, if they weren't valuable, they wouldn't have any rights. So that, that's the sort of first part of that. And, and talking about fairness isn't meant to be an alternative to talking about rights. It's meant to be a helpful way of talking about rights. The rights are still there. Um, no one can take them away from us. But it's a way of, of trying to articulate it so that it doesn't sound um, so self-righteous, so greedy, which it isn't. Uh, my name's Simon Hertzberg. Uh, I'd like to ask, should the... Supreme Court of the United Kingdom have the power to strike down UK legislation that's incompatible with the 
European Convention on Human Rights and maybe more contentiously, should the European Court of Human Rights have that power as well? I'm looking at all my colleagues from the Law Society here and I say, do you know, I'm not going to answer that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i tell you what, the Commission on on the Bill of Rights um, uh, said that there is a huge amount of support of the way that our Human Rights Act works, um, where, um, you know, it can... can, um, it can uh, have a declaration of incompatibility and then the um, uh, Parliament can decide to do a, um, a remedial order. And I have to say, um, you've given me an opportunity to say something that I'm... That it always sounds like I'm bragging, because I'm not, because it was the barristers who what won it, really. But it was a client of mine, a mental health client, actually, of mine, um, who won the first declaration of incompatibility under the Human Rights Act. So I'm extremely... Um, and, and then there was a remedial order. So I, I think that system works pretty well. So, gentlemen, about the grey hooded jacket. Hi, um, I'm kind of following on from that one. I've worked at UKSC and Parliament, and I was kind of thinking now that UKSC is independent of Parliament directly through a new body. Um, is there a need for the UK Supreme Court? Uh, is there a need for the European Court to hold Parliament to account? Because isn't that what UKSC's job's for? So. You said one of the reasons they've always Parliament's always been used to being challenged through its history, mm. um, but now it's got like a UK version of doing that. So I wonder if the European Court needs to do that. Well, the, the challenge has—I mean, um, uh, the Bill of Rights um, set up a, a, a sort of monitoring system and a, and a challenge system, um, but it never had to be put into effect. And no doubt there were all sorts of conversations behind the scenes and so on and so forth. I don't think that we would be very happy with. Um, a situation where there could be a, a, a direct overturning of Parliament. That's not, you know, that's not our parliamentary system. We, we, we don't have um, entrenched laws, and nor do we have um, any way of, of, of um, outsiders being able to overturn our laws. Um, I think it would take a lot of debate to make us think that we should do something differently, and it's certainly not something that I've got a view on. Um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the system we've got. I mean, there's lots of wrong with the system we've got, but not that particular bit. <laughs> So, maybe at the back, black and white jumper. See, very distinctive. <laughs> um, Amy Williams, Human Rights Futures Project here at the LSE. Um, just a question about the Commission on a Bill of Rights report, which, in my reading, the majority uh, report is recommending a UK Bill of Rights, not at the moment. But the principal reason, at least ostensibly for that, is a lack of ownership yeah. over the rights. And so they seem to be sort of uh, advocating a rebranding, if you like. Um, so just picking up on what you've said very convincingly about the power of language, um, if you could just place it in that political context, because there was suggestion from the minority report, of course, that actually it's not just a rebranding exercise that at least some of the majority are advocating, but rather um, sort of mischievous intentions, withdrawal from the ECHR behind it. So if you could just speak a little bit about that political context and the, and the use yes. of language and rebranding. Well, I, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at some of their discussions. They were all very polite about each other, weren't they? Um, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, what they said was that it's to do with, with ownership. Um, but the terms of reference were, you know, let's assume that we are still um, uh, um, signatories to the European Convention. And that was the, that was the sort of the ground rules. Um, and so they weren't saying that rights should be taken away, that we need a bit of rights to take away rights. They were saying we need them to re-explain rights. Well, I think that's a bit of a waste of time, frankly. I think that we, can, we, can, we, we should be trying really, really hard to re-explain them right now. Um, I mean, particularly as the, it was perfectly clear from, from the report and from the sort of individual papers that individual commissioners uh, wrote that the, um, you know, they, the, a lot of them might have thought it would be a good idea to have a bit of rights, but they had no um, sort of agreement at all on what it should contain. So why not try and make what we've got work properly rather than um, messing about and, and, and uh, um, trying to rewrite it? Because we'd end up using the same sort of language. Because you couldn't just say, well, we'll do what's fair, because it wouldn't be precise enough. So, gentlemen down here in the front with a red tie. Thank you. Thank you. My name's Nick Fluck. Lucy, that was a fantastic speech, and I've just been having one of those sort of Damascene moments. I was thinking about your topics for nudges. Uh, and I loved the, the, the uh, linkage you made between the European Court of Human Rights and the European Union. Uh, perhaps if we drop the European word, and because so few of us are affected by court proceedings to deal with defending our rights, 
we stopped saying human rights and said my rights. We might find it easier to live with. Well, we might. Um, but I think it'd be quite difficult. We'd have to get a lot of agreement from our colleagues in the Council of Europe to be able to drop the word European from the European Convention. We could give it a go. You know, we have a, we have a courageous government who are willing to, to you know, stand up against the rest. Um, so, you know, um, I'm, I'm not saying it would be impossible. Um, and of course, what would be really brilliant would be if they called it the, the UK Convention on Human Rights, because then it would be real ownership. And, of course, true. You know. <laughs> Nice try, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> okay, do you have time for a couple more questions? We have some coming through. Everyone wants to go for a drink. Everyone wants to go for a drink. Come on. Oh, oh no, 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 two well, people don't want to go for a drink. That, so, okay, <laughs> these two, and then I think, then we'll go for the drink. Okay. No pressure, guys. You're the one standing between this lot and a drink. Okay. <laughs> Make it good. Hi, my name's Timothy Bell, and I quite enjoyed your speech. Um, there was some criticism late last year about uh, the ASEAN Declaration of Human Rights and that it had vague wording that would allow for national peculiarities or cultural background. Um, and given what you talked about in terms of human rights being linked to culture and tradition, I wondered what your thoughts were firstly on, on, uh, on, on those events last year, uh, but also on the UK and other countries with similar philosophies, um, what their role is in trying to change attitudes um, that, around human rights that perhaps are quite difficult in some cultural um, circumstances. We, we have a very long history of, of, um, of uh, upholders of human rights. Um, it, it's no surprise or no, it's no coincidence that we were so involved in, in the, the, the drafting of the um, UN Universal Declaration and the European Convention because um, we, we know what we're doing and we've been there for a long time. I do think that as a country we do have influence, we should have influence um, and part of the way that, I mean it's, it's really difficult isn't it because as we've been discussing most people are never going to have to assert their human rights. You know things, we, we live in an orderly society it's never going to happen to most people so it's very easy to sort of dismiss it as oh well it's one of those fancy things that are nice if you can afford it. But, of course, around the world, human rights are, are, are hugely important and people are persecuted. I mean, whatever the um, you know, Universal Declaration says, people are, are, are persecuted for um, the very things that we say they shouldn't be persecuted for. So I do think we have a role to play, and it's much easier for us to play that role um, if we have um, a commitment here that, however unnecessary it may seem, rights here are important as well. So um, it's easier for us to, to be convincing abroad if we're also um, able to do so here. And, and I, do, I go, you know, part of my job, how sad it is, is to go around the world and, and uh, meet other lawyers. It's very nice. Um, and, you know, what they say about this country, about its commitment to human rights, about the commitment of lawyers to human rights here, to the rule of law and so on, uh, makes me feel very proud. And it's something that we need to build on and we need to be confident about and not think, oh, well, you know, um, we're, you know, everyone else is just as good as us. Um, lots of people are just as good as us. Lots of people um, are upholding rights in, in countries where it's really, really difficult. And we need to give them support um, against the other people in their countries which are not doing that. And we need to do that by being very, very upfront here in this country about the importance of human rights here in this country. Okay, one last question. Uh, I promise it'll be very short. It really followed from actually the gentleman down there, whose name I'm sorry I didn't catch, about the relationship between um, the Human Rights Act and the European Court. Um, and if one, slightly tongue-in-cheek, what, what do you see as the role of the European Court in the context of the Human Rights Act? Do we really need it? Um, or do we really need to be part of it? Or do you think we're more part of it because it is essential that we're part of it because there needs to be a European court. Um. Well, I mean, the, 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 the virtue of the Human Rights Act is, is um, in the phrase bringing rights back home. Um, you know, the, 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 the European court is, is thoroughly um, uh, deluged with cases, um, and even though they're trying to remedy that and bring, you know, make it all much quicker, um, nonetheless, you know, a case going through the European court can take years unless it gets fast-tracked for some reason. Um, whereas uh, by bringing the, the Human Rights Act allows 
those judgments and so on and so forth to take place here, which is quicker, which also gives a better sense of ownership. Um, so, um, but you still need the European Court at the back because the, the, the Human Rights Act is constructed around the European Court. You know, it doesn't have a, an independent life, as it were. Its, its principles are those of the Convention and the Court. Um, not, not, you know, and, and I'm very conscious of the fact that some very senior judges. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know there is a strong interrelationship between the two and I think that there, there's a synergy there I would say Marvellous, thank you Well I think on that note uh, we will finish and we will thank Lucy once again for a very stimulating and thought-provoking talk this evening <laughs>